We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. There you go. Drop the needle on the record. Drop the needle on the record. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. What is going on? Uh, the, you know, the, the Arrive Can app, which, um, uh, yeah, uh, it's supposed to cost 60 grand, ends up costing 60 million. Whoops a daisy. A couple of people in an Ottawa Valley basement putting this thing together. Uh, and we know what the Auditor General said uh, about all of that. But here's the really funny part. There's an inquiry beginning today on all of this. How many inquiries do we have going on at any given time? Or how many inquiries have we had, say, in the last five years? Uh, don't we still have an election and interference inquiry going on? Uh, and, and here we are. And, and it, my goodness, we've got uh, members pulling out of that inquiry because of lack of credibility and guests that are allowed to speak or inquire. And now we're, uh, I guess, trusting the same process with the Arrive Can app. And again, you know. Uh, the Arrive Can app is, uh, nobody died, I guess, uh, but it still is a waste of $60 million. And it's just fascinating that more inquiries, more, more inquiries, more inquiries, more inquiries. And to me, the significance of the Arrive Can app uh, inquiry and what the Auditor uh, General had to say, um, and because it's all the same in with all of these departments, and 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 all of these ministries that, uh, as the auditor general said, there's just a general lack of accountability, a general lack of basic accounting and business practices, and that to me resonated. And again, the arrive can is just the subject of the day. The arrive can app, but you could take that line out and put it into every single different ministry. And they just don't seem to be able to manage anything. And this despite the civil service increasing by over 30 percent in the time that the prime minister has been prime minister. So more and more people working for the civil service, more and more consultants being used and more and more mistakes. And, And, you know, no matter what the topic is. The Auditor General somehow says yeah, a total lack of accounting or management uh, ability or, or recourse or anything. And as a matter of fact, with the Arrive Can app, uh, the Auditor General said, we're not even sure if it is $60 because there's not enough records to even, to even qualify that. It could be more. So, uh, you know, again, same story, same story, same story. Uh, what do you do? All this while Jugmeet Singh is hammering Justin Trudeau for pharmacare, which is not a priority for Canadians. If you ask Canadians their priority, uh, it's fixing health care, not creating another uh, service under the same template as $10 a day daycare, which is creating shortages from B.C. to Newfoundland. Because, again, just a big fat government program federal government program that's not working, where the provinces are better equipped to handle this sort of thing. Just give them the money. You're wasting it anyway, so why not? Uh, Anyway, uh, what else we got? Oh, um, yeah, millennials are now the largest segment of the population, and if that ain't going to save Trudeau, nothing is. Think about it. Uh, Yeah, those born between 1981 and 1986 
are now, or sorry, 96, 81 and 96 are now outpacing or a larger segment of the population in the boomers, which were born from uh, roughly 46 to 60. No, I'm not going to 65. That's just BS. Uh, so there you go. Uh, that's where we are uh, in the world today. And uh, feel free to jump on board and uh, offer your opinion. We'd certainly love to hear from you. Coming up, Dove Conacher is going to be joining us um, in, in, in issues regarding C, uh, GC Strategies which is which was the basement company that did the arrive can app uh should we go and uh, well what do we do moving forward regarding this also uh Stephen Gibault, the environment minister as you remember last week said they're not interested in building any highways which was a complete contradiction to what his boss said saying nothing has changed but that has got uh, a lot of people uh concerned about especially within the provinces what they do moving forward with projects uh and the premiers and mayors who utilize federal funds to improve their networks where does that all go when the prime minister isn't singing the same tune as his environment minister we'll talk about that also shingles and you know uh, one of those uh, uh, viruses that uh, attack uh, those that are over 50 and what you can do about it to uh, keep yourself protected we'll talk about that also canada's prepared to help the czech republic with initiative to ship tens of thousands of artillery shells from different countries to Ukraine. Where are we in that? Are we really actually delivering any of this stuff? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And Ontario preparing for the growth of its senior population, are we? And as we hear, as the millennials have uh, overtaken the baby boomers as far as the largest segment of the population, what are we doing to make sure when the baby boomers get to, well, they ain't babies anymore, they're old folk. Uh, how do we take care of everybody? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, one Hamilton City Councilor is hoping to ease the financial strain for local restaurants looking to set up a temporary on-street patios uh, coming up this summer. And, you know, man, how can we... Um I can see, uh, you know, covering costs and making sure that the taxpayers don't pay. But, man, how much can we wring out of the hospitality industry? We should bending over, be bending over backwards to uh, do more to help them as they try to keep afloat. All right. We certainly know the situation around the uh, RavCan uh, app and it's supposed to cost, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a few million and ended up costing 60 million. And, and, and not only that, the auditor general's report was scathing saying there doesn't seem to be any sort of, uh, uh, rules that are followed or, or certainly any regard for uh, any basic accounting practices. And w- what I find, you know, I mean, ArriveCan, here's another, here's another inquiry going on, election interference, whatever. I mean, ArriveCan, uh, certainly, um, a lot of people may have been inconvenienced by it, but uh, the big issue is how how much it costs. And for me, the standout in the AG report is just the general lack of management skills that seem to be going on with this and in other situations. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and here now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Uh, you know, we, we've got an inquiry going on here about uh, arrive. How many inquiries do we have going on right now? Uh, well, we've had two report, the procurement ombudsman and also the auditor general. Uh, then the RCMP is uh, looking into it and possibly the commissioner of lobbying uh, based on the issue of unregistered lobbying by the uh, the guys at this company, GC Strategies. And then uh, the uh, House committee is examining it also. 
Uh, in you know, and and it wasn't that long ago we were chatting about uh, election interference and that ongoing inquiry. Is there any more reason to feel more confident in the credibility of this one than any of the others? In terms of the uh, committee that's looking at this, or the RCMP part of it, uh, the committee. Well, I mean, committees are uh, can be good at finding out the facts. Um, Parliament itself has a right to information, has a right to subpoena witnesses and uh, demand that they disclose documents, just like a court. Um, They can find people in contempt of court if they refuse to show up and testify and disclose information that's been requested by Parliament, can even jail them, which hasn't been done in more than 100 years, but is a possible penalty. Um, The problem is generally committees run as... uh, based on partisan politics and not so much the rules of the law and the evidence, but they can um, actually be useful in putting pressure on people, questioning them and and demanding information. So So we'll see whether uh, the committee can get to the bottom of it. At the same time, the committees had been suspended recently after they saw an internal report from the Canada Border Services Agency where Arrive Can app was developed. And they said they there was a vote by the majority of MPs on the committee to suspend those hearings because they felt it would interfere with the RCMP's investigation to continue hearings. Mm. So CG strategies, what can you tell us? The Conservatives are, uh, are trying to get them to appear. Will we see that? What will that show? Uh, we'll see. I mean, they have to get a majority of MPs to agree to that. And um, we'll see whether the committee uh, actually uh, decides to uh, to do that. Um, and when the committee's not sitting this week, so it'll be uh, sitting again um, next week. And uh, the motion was uh, debated last week, but they didn't finish debating it. And um, they're going to make that decision. And I, I mean, I'm not sure having those two guys appear again, it'll be a spectacle, but they're likely to just say the same things they've said before. And all we have are contradictory stories from everyone involved, from the Border Services Agency, from this company, um, and uh, incomplete stories as well. I mean, this really has to be looked at as a full investigation, looking at all the communications. Uh, of any kind, phone, text, all the phone logs, all the emails. Uh, Otherwise, you're not going to get to the bottom of what happened in this situation because you have conflicting stories, people claiming different people were responsible for different steps along the way. So you don't think you would hear anything more from uh, GC strategies than you already know? Uh, Because most may think that, uh, you know, since they're the recipient of the funds, that they would need to tell their side of the story. But are you are you referring that there would be nothing new there? They have testified before. And their side of the story is that, yes, they knew these people at CBSA, but they competed for contracts and. And they haven't done anything wrong. And, you know, they were just bidding on contracts and being handed them. If there was a problem with them being handed the contract, that's a problem for what people did who are government employees, not their problem. 
But uh, if they were, you know, there's, sorry, a, there's a question with them about, you know, you're doing involved in all these communications, trying to get a contract and yet they never registered as a lobbyist. So mm. um, hopefully the commissioner of lobbying is examining that. Uh, but there are huge loopholes in the lobbying law that could allow and do, do allow for secret lobbying. And as a result of those loopholes, you're not covered by the lobbying law or the lobbyist ethics code. And you can also be involved in unethical lobbying. So there's tons of loopholes as well that these kind of situations expose. And no party has shown any interest in closing any of those loopholes in the last 20 years. Are you confident we'll see any sort of result or tangible result after, uh, from this inquiry into ArriveCan? Not, not from the uh, parliamentary committee, no, because um, they are going. They've already voted to let the uh, RCMP look further into it, and uh, it needs a full police investigation. So until that's completed. Uh, and then I would question the RCMP's independence, as we have in the past with the SNC-Lavalin situation, mm-hmm. uh, with the Emergencies Act uh, situation. There's lots of examples of the RCMP acting to protect the the federal cabinet and not uh, actually uphold the law and do proper and full investigations. And so if this situation implicates any Trudeau cabinet minister or, or cabinet staff, I would. I do not trust the RCMP to get to the bottom of it because they've rolled over in the past, as they did in the SNC Lavalin obstruction of justice case. That's been well documented from the access to information we've been able to get out of the government and the RCMP. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. We talked uh, last week about how uh, the environment minister, Stephen Gabot, told a uh, Montreal media outlet that uh, the government was stopping uh, investing in new road projects and new road infrastructure and such. And then uh, the prime minister or the government came out after that and said, no, nothing's changed in our policy. So you got a question of that right there. And then all of a sudden, conservative bloc and NDP MPs on the House of Commons Transport Committee, who kind of try to plan all of this stuff, are wondering, are wondering if the environment minister is going to come and explain his comments around federal road infrastructure projects and where that leaves everyone else, including the province, uh, the provinces, the mayors, what have you. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. And here now, Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Well, Scott, I'm riding around on my bicycle on paths just so you know, to, to be in tune with you for this call today. And a boy, that's a boy. All right, so uh, does the Environment Minister owe uh, Canadians and, and others an explanation, uh, you know, whether it's provinces or what have you, about what the future holds when it comes to transportation? Because it seems he's saying something different than the than his boss is. I think the, the government's going to keep the environment minister as far away from a microphone as they can, because based on his performance last week, I think he had three different positions on this, Scott, uh, concluding with, no, no, what I was talking about was a road 
that the government of Quebec is is moving forward. And as you said, the prime minister came out pretty quickly, as did uh, um, Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan, to say, no, we're, we're going to build roads. So I don't think you're going to hear from him. I think the government is going to say what the boss said. Um, but of course, the opposition being the opposition and knowing there's an interest in this, because a lot of people reacted strongly to, uh, negatively to Guibault's comments, um, they're going to try and pull him in front of the committee to see if he can do some more damage to the government. Now, I should say, Scott, um, when I heard it, I heard it, thought it was pretty outlandish and wild, too. I've learned a little bit more since then, but Gibo never gave this context. There are different reports out there that, you know, uh, have different views on what our road infrastructure should be, but I don't think any of them said as definitively as the minister was as quoted as saying in, in, the, in the Gazette that they wouldn't be building roads anymore. So big political problem for the government that the opposition is going to pick up. And all this under a brand new communications department that was all installed just before Christmas. How is this happening? What is he just a rogue uh, minister? How does this happen? Um, Gibo doesn't have a lot of friends in in cabinet, so it wouldn't surprise me if some might have said, "Did you hear what?" And I don't know this for a fact. I'm wild speculation here, but you know, the, the, um, the prime minister obviously is protecting Gibo. Would be, I think, still in the prime minister's eyes, a loss in Quebec if Mr. Gibo went somewhere. But he doesn't have a ton of allies in his own cabinet or his own party because some people think he one doesn't get traditional politics and two wants to go too far on the environmental front too fast. So uh, I don't know that the new communications team at the PMO could have done much to, to stop that, given that this is a tension and a, and a challenge that's existed for a while. The only way this may change is if Guibault's relationship with the government changed. Uh, over and above the environment minister, um, when I heard this statement, I immediately thought of Dalton McGinty 20 years ago when he said, we're not interested in building any more roads or infrastructure like that, trying to densify, I guess. And now we have a housing shortage. Um, over and above what the environment minister's philosophy beliefs are, how do you expand the population? How do you admit there's a housing crisis and try to come up with solutions for that, but say you're, you're, you've got enough adequate road supply? That just seems like we, isn't this how we created the housing crisis with this sort of thinking? Well, and I'd add another element to it. The last time I checked, the Jetsons were still a cartoon, Scott. Now, you and I know what that was in the cars hovered, Mm. uh, that even electric cars that the government's heavily investing in, going around the world trying to get battery factories here and electrical car manufacturing here, they require roads too. So there's all of that. I think... You know, in Guibault's mind and in the mind of others, um, there, you limit you can limit road infrastructure if you have other public infrastructure. So, you know, let's say the train that never works here in Ottawa work properly. It would take cars off the road. That's the argument. Let's say there'd be other forms of public transportation. So I think that it's a push to, to more public transportation. But right now, We've not seen any evidence that the public transportation network is working to the degree where that is currently possible. And as you point out, uh, we're short of homes. Those homes don't get built also in space. They get built on land and land uh, land requires uh, access to that land requires roads. So 
Yeah, it seems a tad disjointed uh, now. And Guibault, again, not the right messenger. Look, maybe there's a very compelling argument to be made, but this guy is so polarizing, even to his own people, that when he opens his mouth, he may be well intended, but it's going to go in a different direction in terms of how it's interpreted. All while this is going on, we're hearing more and more about that high-speed rail line between Montreal and Toronto, which I think I heard of back in the 1970s, Tim, when I was watching the Jetsons. Isn't it supposed to go off? Oh, it was. No, you're right. It was. It was Windsor to Montreal. And, you know, I was watching Jetsons and the Flintstones at the time, I think. (laughs) Bernie Rubble, me, you, and Fred and Wilma. Yeah, we'd have a good time. Um, Yeah, me too. Look, I, I, I remember he, I, I remember I moved to Ottawa first time in the 1990s, 1993, the last 92, 91, sorry, last couple of years of the Mulroney government. And that was a hot topic, to your point, then among the, uh, Ontario and Quebec and the federal government. That's if you start in 1991, that's 33 years ago, Scott. We still don't have it. Crazy. Again, I remember talking about it in the 1970s. Seriously, um, I think one thing that stands out to me, and uh, in, in perhaps this is resonating with more and more Canadians, and in the uh, Auditor General's report on the Arrive uh, Can app, which, you know, I mean, it's overpriced, it's this, it's that, it's what have you. Um, but it's probably not the most important issue on people's minds right now. But one thing that the Auditor General said and, and just made reference to a general lack of management ability, basic, uh, you know, uh, accounting practices, basic management abilities. That's what seems to be a resonating theme here when it comes to problem after problem after problem with this government. They just they just shoot themselves in the foot. Am I accurate? Yeah, look, I think we've seen lots of examples, particularly in the last three years, where the government doesn't govern well. Now, they did some things right in COVID, I think, you know, the curing yep. of vaccine, even though we got too much of all of that. But, um, but, but they did okay. I think people would generally say they did okay in that moment. But when it comes to other things, they seem to be... You know, a bit all over the map. Look at the state of our military and the lack of equipment there. Not their original problem, but they've been in power for eight years. We don't do that well. There have been other uh, procurement challenges uh, with this government. So, you know, I'm not surprised to hear what the Auditor General has said. And I think the public is baking that in now, too, in our polls and other polls. Um, you see numbers about change of government and, you know, ability to manage bigger government files, and they don't score well. I think in most of them, they're either second or third uh, to Polyev. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies and Managing Director Abacus Data. Uh, many calling on the Environment Minister to explain comments around the federal road infrastructure projects. Tim, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Bye. A new survey of Canadians 50 and older uh, revealed that significant misconceptions about the virus called shingles. You often see the commercials on TV about this, but despite that 8 in 10 respondents uh, are aware of the virus, uh, they still don't know that much about it. Stats Canada shows roughly 40% of our population are over the age of 50. To talk more about it and what shingles means, Carolyn Wiskin is with us, pharmacist in Hamilton here, and is with us now, Dr. Carolyn Wiskin. Carolyn, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am fabulous. Thank you so much for calling. So tell us about this. We see the commercials on TV. What is it? Who does it affect? Well, you know what? No one is immune. Let's put it that way. (laughs) 
So who does it affect? By the time you're age 50, our immune system is starting to wane. And any healthy individual uh, will have an increased risk of developing shingles from age 50 onward. Now, there are other people that are also at increased risk based on conditions. So even though we recommend um, that everyone 50 and over be vaccinated for shingles, we know that there are people who are younger than that who have further risk because they may be on a treatment that suppresses their immune system. They may have an autoimmune condition. And there's actually even other risk factors like family history. And believe it or not, chronic conditions like asthma, COPD, diabetes, depression, even cardiovascular disease are exhausting to the system. So it seems that chronic conditions themselves do increase the likelihood that you're going to reactivate that virus you had years ago as chickenpox in the form of shingles. So an exhausted Uh, immune system will do it. Uh, and, and, and as you mentioned, once that happens, uh, you're open to a lot of different things. You talked about the relationship uh, with other uh, diseases and things. How, how does this come? And, and I've also heard this is always in your body. So how, how do, what are the origins of this? How does it form? So really, once you have the chickenpox virus, uh, we mm-hmm. think of as varicella, it lays dormant in your nerves and it can reactivate later in life through triggers that can just be stress-related, but certainly Mm. as our body ages, just an aging immune system, it is more likely to reactivate. So we see that, you know, once somebody reaches the age of like, you know, 80 to 85, 50% of people are going to have shingles. It's probably about a one in three by the time you're age 50. So, you know, we can't always predict what is going to be that trigger What is going to be that stressor to the system? So just having chronic disease is a stressor, but life stress. I mean, it's interesting. We've even seen people post-COVID have a greater risk of developing shingles because of the stress Hmm. to their body in that infection. Now, do you, in order to get shingles, do you have to have had chickenpox before then? You do. Absolutely. Right. Okay. And symptoms, what is it like? I mean, I hear this can be quite painful. Absolutely. So I think the rash is the first thing we think about, but it's it's a painful rash. You know, there could be an aching, a burning, even sort of a stabbing type of feeling to it. And then you see these little blisters and those blisters will eventually open and discharge some uh, some fluid. It is going to follow the line of a nerve. So we see it often in the abdomen. Uh, we can see it across the chest, but it can also occur on the face. And so you think about your, where your nerves generate from. You know, they're coming from the spinal column at the back. And then they move sort of around to the front. So that nerve path is going to stop right sort of in the center. It won't cross your your center um, area, if you will. It's just going to be on one side. So that also gives you the clue. It's not like something on the right and left side of your chest or abdomen. It's going to follow a path and literally stop at that center line where that nerve is going to end. So that's sort of another clue. But it's that, that burning, that rash, the blistering that starts that we've got to shut down really quickly. If somebody gets that, uh, an episode of shingles, of course, we do have an antiviral treatment and we want to start that immediately to shut it down. But that antiviral treatment still does not prevent this potential pain and burning that can linger for months, if not years. And so this is where prevention is really the key, not just trying to, you know, hope I get that, um, that antiviral in time because it's not going to do everything we need. So you can get a shot for this. Absolutely. I think that's that's really the key in everything. Yeah. 
Uh, and so we do, we did have two different vaccines at one point, but right now we only have one vaccine on the Canadian market. Uh, and it is a vaccine that is non-live. So it is safe to give to people who are on immunosuppressant treatment. Um, our previous vaccine was a live one. So the name of our current vaccine is Shingrix. And the requirement is two doses. So a first one and a second one two months later. And I have to tell you, one of the issues with uh, during COVID and, you know, people not having as much access to getting into family physicians and, and getting vaccines, of course, pharmacies uh, inject this as well. Um, but part of it was forgetting that second dose. And you're yeah. not truly protected until you, it's not a booster. You are not fully protected until you get the second one. So that's really important. All right, Hamilton pharmacist, Carolyn Wiskin with us. Talk to your pharmacist or doctor about shingles and what you can do to prevent uh, any sort of infection. Carolyn, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hard to believe, but... Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and almost at the two year mark. Think about that. It was only supposed to be a few days. Uh, Canada is prepared to assist the Czech Republic with an initiative to ship tens of thousands of artillery shells from different countries to Ukraine on an urgent basis to talk more about all of this and where we are. At the two-year mark, Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, here now. Jack, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, coming up to two years on this, give us an update. We really get the feeling that Ukraine, not much has changed. They're just kind of hanging on. Is that accurate? Well, the Ukrainians have actually scored uh, a number of successes, particularly on the uh, the naval front. They've struck a number of significant Russian targets. They have seriously degraded Russian military capabilities, but they are somewhat hamstrung by the fact that they don't have enough uh, artillery shells and uh, and bullets. Uh, for some time now, President Zelensky has been uh, making increasingly desperate pleas for assistance on this front. And now he has conceded that, well, not conceded, he's, he said quite openly that the Ukrainian withdrawal from Avdivka over the weekend was, in fact, uh, due largely to the lack of sufficient ammunition and artillery shells. So this shortage of munitions is actually shaping events on the battlefield. Why the shortage, if everybody's supporting? Well, everybody's supporting rhetorically, but not everybody is uh, is actually anting up when, uh, when it counts. Uh, the most egregious offenders, of course, have been the uh, the Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives, and they've been playing this very cynical game of, on the one hand, saying that uh, there's no point aiding Ukraine because Ukraine can't win, while on the other, uh, denying Ukraine the aid that would uh, that would actually change things. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As for Canada, uh, we've talked a very good game. But uh, one of the problems is that our domestic uh, munitions production is not great. Our domestic stocks are low. Now, in late 2022, we did uh, reach this agreement in principle to ramp up artillery shell production at facilities in Ontario and Quebec. But the necessary $400 million investment by Ottawa has not occurred. 
<clears throat> the uh, the the apparent rationale for this is that there's some doubt that the uh, the long term demand would uh, would really suffice to uh, to accommodate that sort of increase in production. Uh, which is probably untrue. I mean, there have been there have been informal talks with uh, with the Americans who have said, you know, you ramp up production and you can be reasonably confident that there will be sufficient demand to make it worthwhile. Uh, this just shows that Ukraine is not the priority with their current government that uh, some of their rhetoric would lead one to think. Is Canada delivering what we say? Um, is it better to deliver what we promise or just keep promising more that we're not delivering? Are we fulfilling our obligations? Are we delivering what we say we're going to? No. No, we're not, at least not in a timely fashion. I mean, there's this uh, air defense system that we promised uh, more yeah. than a year ago, and yeah. there still hasn't been a contract signed. There is this question of artillery shells. The um, the initiative that the Czechs unveiled at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend is uh, is helpful, but it's uh, it's eight hundred thousand shells, uh, mostly from countries outside NATO. It's probably a one off. It's not a long term solution. Uh, it may appeal to the current government because our investment would only be thirty million dollars rather than the four hundred million required to uh, increase domestic shell production. So it uh, it looks good, but uh, it uh, it sort of kicks the underlying problem down the road rather than facing up to it. Are we uh, approaching this in the right way? And by that I say, you know, when someone gets in in trouble, when when an ally or somebody needs help, uh, here we are promising to do this and promising to send that, whether it ever gets there or not. Is the best thing that we could do in any of this is rather than playing piecemeal military, is actually start contributing to what we say we're going to do and just rather than spending it on sending stuff out, just beefing up our own military. Well, that would uh, that would help. Uh, the The fact is that a a thriving domestic arms industry would uh, would not only enable us to help uh, help arm our own military better than it is, but uh, it would help us meet uh, the demands of our allies, such as Ukraine. But the uh, the government has been lagging in terms of providing the required industrial capacity. Uh, and our, milita- our, our military on any given day, I'm understanding, is somewhere around 16,000 members short. Is that accurate? Well, there are different estimates, but that one is not wildly off base. I do know that we are substantially short. We are substantially under strength. So recruitment is a problem. Uh, retention is perhaps even more of a problem. So we're not, uh, we're not meeting our responsibilities to ourselves or to our allies. Uh, if we're short on everything, Jack, how can we send anything? Well, we we will grab a hold of expedients like this uh, this this Czech initiative, which, while praiseworthy uh, and uh, and they look good, they don't really increase uh, increase our ability to deliver over the long term, and that's what we need. We need a more substantial uh, military industrial base. We are now in an era of increased great power conflict, uh, increased international tension, and uh, hard power and military capability are the currency of the day. If we want to have any influence at all in international circles, we've got to be prepared to back up what we say with uh, with bullets, with shells, with uh, with soldiers.
and we're not doing that. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We were talking earlier that uh, the millennials are now the largest cohort of the population as baby boomers move on into retirement and such. Uh, are we ready for that? Ontario will need close to another 7,000 health specialists to accommodate the aging population over the next five years. A McMaster University team that co-produced a study for home care, Ontario, is predicting dire consequences as that large segment of the population moves through. Let's bring in Laura Tamlin-Watt, CEO and president of the Seniors Advocacy Group, Can Age, and is with us now. Laura, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Delighted to be here. Thanks. So are we ready for this? It's not like we didn't know it was coming. I mean, we've got lots of time to plan. Are we ready for this? Are we, are yeah. we making those plans? <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but of course, we're the farthest thing from ready. And and this report is actually understating the, the biggest problem. It says that we need about 6,800 personal support workers in Ontario and in home care to keep the current status. And of course, you and I have talked a lot about the fact that the current status is not very good. There is a waiting list to receive home care for people who've already qualified and this is only in the home care. This isn't talking about all personal support workers that we need in, say, long-term care or hospital. It's also not talking about all the other health specialists we need, too. So this is just a very small insight into how unprepared we really are. Uh, we know what it was like coming through a global pandemic and what that meant for the health system and long-term care. Has that allowed us or made us readjust our thinking on this and look at it differently? I think it's made us more worried. And we have seen some promises and investments by different levels of government. So many folks will have paid attention to the health agreements that the federal government has been making with the promises. Ontario, of course, $3.1 billion. And there was a flag that some of that is supposed to go to seniors care. But have we substantially made any changes? No, not really. Uh, are we going to see this move through like a wave and then, you know, 10, 20 years, it's passed through? I mean, how do you plan? How do you balance all of this? What we are seeing is that our population is aging and it will continue to age. So I'm in the Gen X generation, which is that narrow middle point in the hourglass between the boomers at the top end and the millennials who are even bigger than the cohort of boomers on the bottom end. So Gen X is a small generation. What's going to happen is the boomers are living longer our greatest generation, people who are right now 80 plus, are also living longer. Mm. And then the millennials are also going to be living even longer than that. All of that means to say, no, we really need to get ready for the fact that we're having this longevity benefit. But the offset of that is that we need services to support that healthy longevity. 
And you bring up a valid point, Laura. I mean, we're talking about this giant segment of the population called the baby boomers moving their way through. But there's another younger version called the millennials, which are just as big, if not bigger. So after the baby boomers make their way through, we're going to get hit with a second wave of this almost. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. That's what's going to happen. And and in a way, it's good news. We always think about it as being a problem. It's good news because we now know what we need to do, and that is to rethink what seniors care and healthy longevity means. The other good news is we've had about 30 reports in about 30 years, all saying that robust home care, aging in place, helping family caregivers are the very things that is both cheapest and what everyone wants and keeps people out of the acute care system, which we don't want to break. The problem is we are not taking the steps that will lead us to that. And that really is fundamentally uh, an issue that we're running up against the wall. And as you said, this is a multi-layered onion here. We're talking about home care. So that's trying to keep people in their homes as long as you can by bringing services in to help them. But as you said, I mean, whether it's long-term care, nursing homes, retirement homes, everything else that bridges all of those gaps uh, are going to see the stress as well, including the healthcare system. And that healthcare system, we have to remember, we designed it for a very young and healthy population. So when hmm. we created our acute care system, our Canada Health system that we all love and, and care about and rely on and proudly go into the hospital with our OHIP cards or whatever our, our local care card is, we designed that at a time where people died at 67. Yeah. And we refresh that at a time where people were in their mid 70s. And we haven't really done that since then. And so what we're seeing is people are going into the hospital system and staying there. That awful term bed blockers is one many people will know. Right. But really what it's saying is our acute care system is not set up for chronic or long term care. And we're not being able to redesign our system fast enough to keep people at home where they can get the services that they really need to stay out of that hospital bed. And unfortunately, especially with a hospital situation at the opposite end of this, there's still a shortage of family doctors who, again, putting more stress on all of these systems. Absolutely. And what we also see is we're not really using the full scope of practice of our healthcare professionals. And that's something we can do better. As an example, pharmacists in many other countries have a very big scope of practice, but we limit our pharmacists. In fact, we don't even let them give certain shots. And, and that's nonsensical. We don't put out enough nurse practitioners, or we're not effectively using things like artificial intelligence or telehealth to get rid of some of those banal tasks so that we can actually use those good healthcare professionals, those individual human beings in the most efficient way possible. Just to give you a sense, in long-term care, personal support workers often are filling out forms three hours a day and they're not using mm. that time to yeah. provide the care. We have to do better with our systems. You know, many in, in many aspects of this discussion, Laura, people just say more, 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 more. You, it's not often you hear people say we just got to do it better, better, better as well. Better is what's important here. We have a lot of inefficiencies in our system at the same yeah. time where we have technology really expanding. And so I think what's going to be important is to say, what is it that we can do with everyday technology, our telephones, our 
you know, watches and so on that we're so used to, what can we use to prompt somebody if your fridge is empty or you've got spoiled food? What automatic shutoffs can you have in your stove that relieve people from having to have people come into their own homes with consent, of course. I'm not suggesting that we do invasive things, but our technologies are getting better and that allows us to focus and preserve that in-person care for the most important time. And certainly dementia is going to be a huge part of that as our population Mm. is aging. We need to really think about aging at home with dementia in a more effective way. And who would have thought, Laura, we'd been having this conversation and you bring up AI, but there you go. I mean, you got to use all the tools, right? Uh, wow. Fascinating discussion. Laura Tamlin Watts with a CEO and president of the Seniors Advocacy Group, Can Age, as we try to prepare for an aging population as the baby, bo- uh, baby, uh, baby boomers make their way through that cohort. Laura, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. The one good thing about a global pandemic is sometimes it makes us change the way we look at things because you really can't pause the world for a couple of years and then expect it to keep spinning the way that it once did prior to all of this. And and one of the things we did was, was loosen up some restrictions and regulations uh, within our hospitality industry to help them get by things like patios and such, uh, which normally eh, city councils, for some reason, just they're not into the change and just keep things sort of the status quo. And if you travel all over the world and you see the ways they do the way they do things in different uh, regions and such, you wonder, why are we kind of archaic in what we do? And one of those issues was patios with local restaurants and people wanting to set up patios uh, in any space that they had just trying to get through all of this. And a lot of those suggestions have stuck and small businesses are still recovering from the impacts of all of this. And with that in mind, Ward 4 Councillor Tammy Wang presented a motion to ease the financial costs for local restaurants looking to set up on-street patios again this year, and it was approved today. Six hundred seventy-six applica- uh, application, six hundred seventy-six dollar application fee will be waived uh, as a result of this. Tammy Wayne, Councillor for Ward Four in the City of Hamilton, here now. Tammy, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Yes, thank you very much. And actually, I just wanted to correct the record a little bit. I was a touch late getting back into the meeting. So actually, Councillor Ted McMeekin pushed the motion forward. But this was originally something that both um, Councillor McMeekin and I had been um, tag teaming on, ensuring that this is moving forward for our small businesses. Uh, with the uh, global pandemic, it allowed us to open things up and change a bit. How has that Uh, How has that changed decisions moving forward? How has that uh, changed the status quo at at City Hall and at City Council and doing things like this? I think that what we're seeing now is that we are starting to see an opening and a back to pre-pandemic times. But we also know that significant sectors like hospitality have not recovered to what they are at pre-pandemic times. So When we think about Hamilton, Hamilton is essentially built on the backs of small businesses. And of that, and I just did a quick little research on that, a significant portion of small businesses, so those that have five to 99 employees, are actually in the food sector. So when we think about how we want to build up businesses and make Hamilton attractive to not only our residents, but to people coming from outside, I think that we have to support our small businesses in ensuring that they're they're given all of the tools that we can try and offer in order to help build them up. up. How, 
Okay, say I own a restaurant or somebody owns a restaurant and they're interested in installing a patio of some sort or, or, or implementing something like this. How difficult or what are the hoops that, that a business has to jump through? What's the process in order to get to this? Well, we actually have a dedicated person uh, in our planning and economic team, economic development team, where her whole role is to help facilitate those businesses and help them get to a point of actually setting up a patio in either a parking spot that might be directly in front of their in front of their business, or maybe if they have enough sidewalk space, they can look at that. This person will walk them through what the process looks like. They do have to apply to actually be um, accepted into the program. Uh, then there's a whole list of check boxes that they need to accomplish. One of which, which we've been talking and debating about is the cost of ensuring safety to patrons that might be on the street or in on the sidewalk. Right. So uh, not only do they have an application fee to actually do this patio program, but there is also a fee to actually build something that is accessible so that way people can still use the sidewalk and build something that is going to withstand any of the traffic issues that might happen. So ensuring that there are proper crash barriers, ensuring that there is enough signage. So those are also mm -hmm. born of the small business. But this is where we're trying to figure out how do we streamline the process and make it a lot easier for small businesses to actually build up their business. So is it just basically the 676 application fee that's going to be waived here or are there other conditions along the way to make this easier? Uh, at this point, it is just the application fee of the $676.11. Um, but we are also actively continuous improvement, trying to find ways to ensure that Small businesses can make this a sustainable business practice and that we're trying to make their lives easier. But what we're also thinking about from a council perspective is how do we balance those of small businesses and the challenges and the plates of small business, but also ensure that we're creating revenue opportunities so that we can start to offset some of the mm. pressures that go on to residential taxpayers. So as you know, we've got, gone through a, a budget process. So we are trying very hard to balance the needs of small business versus the needs of property and taxpayers. Uh, much opposition to something like this, Tammy. It, sometimes it seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, safety and liability a big issue here, but much opposition to this. I don't think so. There hasn't been that much opposition. I mean, um, today at GIC, the majority of the committee did Past this. Uh, we did have one uh, counselor that spoke against it, but I can understand exactly where he's coming from. He's looking at it from a revenue generating perspective. So again, we're trying to balance what are the needs of small business? How do we continue to grow and help them foster? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are also paying taxes. They're the ones mm. generating jobs and economic wealth for the city of Hamilton. But we also need to think about how are we generating revenues that are outside of the property tax base. So again, it's a bit of a delicate balance trying to ensure that we're working on behalf of all Hamiltonians. Tammy Wang with us, Councillor for Ward 4, City of Hamilton, trying to help uh, hospitality uh, by waiving the $676 application fee for patios coming up this season. Tammy, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Writing in the National Post, Richard Schmuka says Canada's Ottawa's 1980 system of buying weapons is no match for 21st century warfare. That's the headline in the Post. A decade ago, the procurement system was seen as a problem but not a lethal threat. Today, it is a bona fide threat to Canada's security considering the changing nature of war. And to talk more about that, Richard Schmuka, senior fellow, McDonnell-Laurie Institute, expertise in Canadian and American foreign and defense policy and procurement. And here now richard thanks for the time hope you're well i am thanks for having me this seems to be something that sort of uh flies under the radar every so often you hear the word procurement and all i think canadians really know is we're not really good at it uh we know that the canadian government needs to buy stuff why are there why is there so much concern around pro procurement and purchasing of of such items there's two ways of looking at it i think the first way is kind of how we see it in canada specifically, which is that we see these big programs like replacing our CF-18 with the F-35 or replacing the Halifax-class frigates with the the Canadian Service Command, which is CSC. And so it looks like we don't do these well, right? Uh, We see that they take much too long to sort of get off the ground and and sort of completed. It looks like the costs in a lot of these programs are high. And sometimes the capability that we get isn't necessarily isn't what we need, right? Uh, and so that's the way you see it in the press. And, and, you know, you'll see articles in the CBC or, you know, Canadian press that kind of highlight this. That's a problem so, for sure. And there's issues with that. But there's a second side to it that I think Canadians are completely, they don't even see it because they aren't really steeped in what's going on outside of our borders. And if you look at how defense is moving with, if you think about our societies, I think we've talked about this a bit before. If you look at our societies, it's like how we've got, you know, now we have cell phones, like mobiles, that, uh, that are mini computers. We're all connected in this sort of using social media and, and all these uh, different sort of ways. Warfare is also moving along that way. And that's changing how the, it's being fought. It's changing the kind of systems that are being used. We're seeing a lot of this in what's going on in Ukraine. And the what we're buying and how we're buying it in for the Canadian forces reflects that old style. And it doesn't really reflect this new real the new reality of war and where it's going. And, and our the procurement system just just cannot handle some of these these arguably revolutionary changes in warfare that's ongoing right now. But even when it wasn't revolutionary, Richard, we were falling behind on this. Uh, It sounds like the right people aren't in the right positions. They're not qualified to be making these purchases. Is that accurate? Mm, Yes and no. I think there's a segment of people who actually are very good at what they do. They know what's needed. These are largely within Department of National Defense and specifically in some of the, uh, the, the commands of the Canadian Armed Forces. They know what they need. They see this on a daily basis. They work with our allies. They see what their allies are doing. And then they say, well, you know, we need, let's say, an anti-drone system because we see that everybody else is buying these systems. We should probably, you know, get the same thing, right? And we see the threat that's going on in Ukraine. So to them, that's they see that, right? What's happened is that over the past 30, 30 plus years is that you've had increasing increasingly you've seen the government various governments not just this current government but just they add more process they add people into the system that necessarily don't have the most like this isn't 
this isn't critical to what they do as it is for the Canadian Forces member who are literally gaming equipment for their own, you know, their own members of their own service. So they say, well, we got to make sure we have value for money and we need to meet these other objectives. Like we got to promote industrial development in Canada, right? And so what you start happening, these all these other considerations start intruding upon the requirement to get, you know, the equipment to the Canadian forces. Right. And even to some degree, get it cheaper or more cost effectively into the Canadian forces. Because if you talk to a lot of members in in the military, they'll tell you, it's like, we want to get it as cheap as possible because that means we can get something else more for something else, right? Sure. But because it's not, because that doesn't exist, because of, there's other sort of impulses that the government's trying to follow, it means that that doesn't happen. And there's also mm-hmm. this real desire, it's like, oh, if we have process, it means we won't have failures. There's this really strong desire to avoid, right. there's like almost no failure uh, that's required. They want no risk. And those kind of considerations really handicap the Canadian forces in its ability to get the equipment that it needs for for past 30 years. Is this a solvable problem? And again, we know the world has changed. And, and you know, what was policy 10 years ago doesn't necessarily mean policy today. Uh, 10 years ago, China was seen as the golden goose. It's looked at a lot differently now. So things have changed. Is this something we can solve? How do we make this better? That's a big question. And I, I think there's ways, but it's hard. It's hard. There's no single solution. Right. That's, that's something I've kind of preached for a long time is that there's no one way to fix all of this. Right. It, it requires a whole bunch of things to sort of change, which is difficult for a lot of governments to accept. Right. Um, as I was talking about before, there's risk. And I think governments have to understand that there may be there's there's likely almost certainly going to be programs that are going over cost. And if you accept that and and sort of start to build around the ideas like, well, we need to get something to service. There's an acceptable limit of cost. And if we kind of exclude some of these other requirements, right, these some of the industrial development stuff and accept that some of the stuff cannot be done in Canada either, you start to kind of get a better policy footing or a better approach to to undertake defense so that people within the government can maybe get these things out faster. Uh, One of the biggest issues that we see is every year you delay the money that's allocated to a program diminishes because you have Mm. inflation right so if you're budgeted you know 100 million dollars last year to buy let's say some anti-drone systems right the next year it's going to be three percent or four percent less right and that's on top of the fact that you've got to pay for staff to kind of keep working on this project so these delays really cripple the forces in getting his equipment in and also you know getting uh getting the equipment they want and and so if you kind of make it a goal to sort of deliver equipment that is necessary on time in an orderly fashion i think that sort of exclude that helps them helps the military and helps the sort of the government writ large get an outcome that is better an output that is necessary if, but we're just we don't have that interest we the, all the other stuff that's kind of put into the system just really affects what what comes out Mm, too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, Richard Schmuka with us, senior fellow, McDonald Laurie Institute, expertise in Canadian and American foreign and defense policy, uh, and his latest in the National Post. Ottawa's 1980 system of buying weapons is no match for 21st century warfare. Richard, thank you for the time. Be well.
Thanks for the time. The federal government is cutting the amount of financial relief small businesses will receive from carbon pricing revenues so it can increase the size of the rebate it is providing to rural families. One have more votes than the other. Uh, that's despite the fact that the government still owes businesses more than $2.5 billion in promised carbon pricing revenues from the first five years of the program and refuses to say when that money will flow. Small businesses were already paying more than they're getting back, and the change will make that shortfall even worse, said Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. To talk more about all of this, Dan is with us. Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business business and here now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So when did you find out this was happening and uh, uh, what is the reason that was given? Did they, they actually come out and say, well, we're scaling back businesses so we can give more to r- rural communities? Well, look, the first sign of that was back in September, uh, September, October, when the government did announce changes uh, to the f- formula to try to curry some support in Atlantic Canada. When they announced the exemption for home heating fuel, the the heat pump uh, funding, as well as the larger rural rebates. They said they were going to do that by by funding it through an excess allocation that they found in other areas. And as soon as I heard those words, I Mm. thought, I bet you that's going to be scaling back the amount of money that is supposed to be coming back to small business. Well, on Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, the federal government put out background papers to show that they're doing exactly that. The share that consumers are going to get back for this rural rebate, uh, as well as some additional money going to Indigenous organizations, is going to come uh, and be paid for by reducing the allocation that is supposed to go back from the carbon tax to small and medium-sized firms. In fact, we estimate now that will be a total cost of a half a billion dollars next year uh, in 2024. It sounds like robbing Peter to pay Paul. You got it. And and look, uh, I have been sharing with government that the carbon tax actually these days has very little to do with climate change. It has essentially become a wealth transfer from some Canadians and from yeah. small businesses yeah. to other Canadians. It's, mm-hmm. it's no longer hitting the mark. Uh, if it were a carbon tax, what would happen is government would put a price on carbon and then return that money back to those same people so that they can pay for lower carbon activities. Well, that only works if you actually return the money to to the same Canadians that you're taking it from. If you're doing that on a selective basis, what does that say to small business owners? It says you're not part of the climate climate change solution. You're basically a funder of, of this government initiative. So when and how will this change? What will this look like for small business? Well, step one is getting the money that is locked in the bank in in the in Ottawa right now, that two and a half billion dollars, get it back to the small businesses that contributed to it. For five years, since 2019, the federal government has been collecting hundreds of millions of dollars a year from small businesses. They've said, they promised that that uh, two and a half billion will be returned as soon as they can figure out how to get it back to you. Well, five years later, there's still no mechanism to return a nickel to small businesses at this moment. And so that's step one, is getting that $2.5 billion back through rebates to the small businesses that contributed to it. Step two is to try to get small businesses to get a larger share of the overall carbon tax revenue. We estimate that, in fact, small firms pay about 40% of the overall take of the carbon tax, and they're now going to get 5% of the rebate. That is not fair. 
we're pushing for that to be brought up to a sensible level and do that uh, through a carbon rebate. Look, the next election is going to be fought over the future of the carbon tax, and and mm. that the whole thing may disappear, or it may may be supported and 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 continued. We don't know. What I do want to make sure, though, is that as long as the carbon tax exists, at least it's being administered fairly to all participants, including small and medium-sized companies that pay the the extra cost of fuel for heating their buildings or for driving uh, commercial vehicles. These are some of the costs that businesses, I think, deserve to get rebates just the same way that Canadians do. So uh, as well as scaling back uh, the rebates that small businesses are going to get or independent businesses are going to get, they still haven't reimbursed you for money that's already been invested. You, the businesses aren't seeing that. Is that accurate? You got it. In Ontario alone, it's $1.3 billion that is owed to small and medium-sized businesses from the government of Canada. $1.3 billion that's been collected in 2019, 20, 21, 22, 23. That money is sitting in an account. The government acknowledges that it owes it to small businesses, but they haven't even gotten around to figuring out the structure. And so just today, we proposed to the federal government that they blow the money out. They, they divide it up by the number of businesses that exist in the province and at least cut them a check. The money that exists on the, the, the reason that the government thought that this is a great piggy bank to pay for other promises is because they're struggling to even get the existing amount of money out the door. So Absolutely. Yeah. They got a they get a big pile of sugar that's burning a hole in their pocket right now and they're talking about cutting you off for the future. They haven't even delivered what they were supposed to in the past. It, it's it's so unfair. And this is why, you know, small businesses understand the importance of protecting the environment. There are many businesses that support climate change as a uh, you know, as, as yeah. a worthwhile endeavor and something that they're prepared to invest in. But but for goodness sakes, it don't climate change the response only works. If you're not just giving people the stick, but you're giving them the carrots too. If you're mm-hmm. only getting the stick, you can understand why the opposition to the carbon tax has been growing among small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, 82% of small firms across the country say that the carbon tax has got to go. Um, the change here, um, it's pretty hard not to just assume that, well, they're going to get more votes out of the rural areas than they are out of business. Is, is that the gamble here? You know, it is, I, I don't know. I try not to be cynical about these things, but yes, when they announced the, uh, the changes to try to quell some of the upset in Atlantic Canada, uh, they did so. And then looked around for somebody to pick up the tab. And, and they figured that since they're not able to get this money out to small businesses anyway, we might as well use it uh, to try to curry some support by increasing the rural rebates. And I want to say, look, we're not opposed to increasing the, uh, the, the rebates for rural Canadians. We're not opposed to increasing the rebates yep. going to an Indigenous organization. My question is, why is small business viewed as the, the font of, of cash? For, to pay for these priorities. This, that doesn't seem fair. And, and it's the reason why we're delivering this message. We've got a petition on CFIB's website for small business owners to sign if they agree that this is a, a ripoff and needs to change. Our petition at CFIB.ca will help them do just that.
Uh, you know, uh, people are complaining about carbon tax already and the stress it's putting on Canadian families, especially with affordability issues being what they are now. It seems that this is still not even raising enough money for the government if they have to rob Peter to pay Paul in order to get the rebates to the people that need them. Um, they're spending everything they got here. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the principle of the carbon tax is that it should be revenue neutral and all the money should be delivered back. Yeah. Uh, but the federal government hasn't been doing that. They've been sitting on a chunk of the money that was supposed to come back to small business. And now they've raised the share that is to go back to, uh, to, to Canadian consumers by taking it out of the out of the allocation that was otherwise going to go to small businesses. That's mm. the bridge too far from our perspective. If we're going to have a carbon tax, as long as it exists, it should be at least administered fairly so that all Canadians pay some of the costs and all Canadians get some of the revenue back. Uh, That seems one of the most basic principles, but somehow that has been lost by the federal government. Federal government scaling back carbon price rebates for smaller independent businesses. Dan Kelly with us, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now, Scott Radley. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and happy, I know it's Simone Lawrence Day in Hamilton today, but happy Tim Horton Day. Wow. See, I was debating whether to talk to you about that or not. Because uh, uh, Mr. Lowe, who is a history teacher, retired history teacher, sent me a note today. Well, today in Can- uh, Canadian history, uh, February 21st, 1974, Tim Horton killed in a car crash outside St. Catharines, Ontario, driving 50, his Ford Ford Pantera at high speed. Yeah, 50 years ago today that, uh, that yeah. Tim Horton died. And I don't know. I know he's not from here. He's from Cochrane. But I don't know, is there anybody who is more synonymous with Hamilton than Tim Horton, honestly? No. Well, this is where it all started for him. So, yeah, in the company. So, yeah, it's, I think, and it's, this is a big source of pride for Hamiltonians, absolutely. One of the amazing things about it is that Tim Horton, Tim is not his first name. Did you know that? No. What is it, Bit? No, no, but that's, this is it's the funny ben part. Horton. This is it's the ben funny Horton. part. No, his first name is Miles. Miles Gilbert, Tim mm. Horton. Imagine if he'd gone, instead of by Tim Horton, imagine if he'd gone by Miles and now you'd be going to Miles to get a coffee yeah. and having Miles bits. How different would our guys, world be? Anything? Yeah, how different would our world be around here if we were eating Miles bits, which actually sounds kind of gross. You know, yes, it, it does a bit. Anyway, uh, what I noticed that was fascinating too, he was 44 years of age. He was 44 and still playing. Yeah, And I mean, slowing down, but this is, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's funny to me because there are people and maybe some of them listening right now who don't know that Tim Horton was a hockey player. He is just, yeah. he is just the name a donut guy. of yeah. right of a donut company and don't realize that he wasn't just a hockey player. I mean, he was an amazing hockey player and who happened to dip his toe into business with Ron Joyce. And let's be honest, um, there is I was a, wondering where you're going to go dipping of the toe. Is it in a chocolate? Is it in no, a coffee? No, but there is a very realistic possibility. We'll never know this, but there is a very realistic possibility that had Tim Horton not died, and no one is happy that that happened the way it did, but mm. it was really after that, that Ron Joyce got full control of that company, bought the rest from Tim Horton's widow, and really it, exploded after that. If Tim Horton had lived, 
it may never, who knows what kind of control he might've wanted to have, or yeah. maybe not. Yeah. It may not have turned out to be the way that it turned out. Cause there's an awful lot of athletes that have tried to build, yep. you know, John, I don't know. I, I grew up in Toronto. There was John Anderson who used to play on the kid line with Laurie Boschman and Rocky Saginaw mm-hmm. back in the seventies, eighties. And he had mm-hmm. John Anderson hamburgers. And I think there were yeah, two or three outlets never. Yeah. Never went anywhere. Eddie Shack had a hamburger place once upon a time. Never yep. went. Tim Horton had a hamburger place up in. Yeah, they started as hamburgers. Yes. Yeah. Way up somewhere yeah. again in Northern Ontario. So who knows if this doesn't happen and Ron Joyce doesn't get full control and do the things he does, who knows if this ever becomes what it did. That's a, that's a fascinating, um, that's a fascinating theory. Yeah. And, and, or how it would be, how it would be even different than it is now, uh, had it, uh, not been sold cause it's been sold a couple of times since then. So, um, yeah, who knows where it'd be. All right. Uh, are you, are you enjoying the retro donuts? Do you care since we've made this a Tim Hortons commercial? I have had one of the retro donuts and I'll tell you, um, I kind of feel like, you know, when you're a kid and you go back somewhere where you haven't been since you were a kid and you look in the room and you go, I remember this being a lot bigger. So, yeah. I, I, I had the blueberry fritter and I thinking to myself, I remember this being a, maybe I've just grown or something, but I remember it was this the being, size uh, of my fist. Yeah. yeah. I remember it being a lot bigger. It's about a three biter now. And I don't know if that's just me, my mouth getting a lot bigger or if it's shrunk a bit. You're waiting for the McRib. I had one. Did you? I had one. Why? I'm not. Why? I'm not Why? I, uh, um, a moment you never have before. Like, why would you do that? I, think like, I, I don't remember these. I don't remember these ever tasting good. So the, the McRib, let, um, I, I don't recall if I ever had a McRib before. I think I must've, and I don't know what possessed me, but I'm driving through and I was just going to get something cause I was starving and I saw a McRib and I went, ah, let's do it. And I'll say this, um, what was proven by the McRib because you are not eating rib per se. No, it's is, stamped out like a rib. Yeah. And who knows which parts of the pig it's come from, but it, anything that is slathered in rib sauce tastes like rib. You could, you could pour rib sauce on a roll of <laughs> toilet paper and chew on that. And you would say, well, it kind of, it tastes like rib. So, uh, it, it, look, it was the, it was the one time it was the first and the last. I won't do it again. I've, I, I'm a sucker though for this, Scott. I'm, I am, I'm one of those people. I'm a weak minded person. I'm, I'm going to admit it that when I see an ad, sometimes I'm one of the ones that gets, I got to try that. The McLobster. Did you ever try the McLobster? What a mistake that was. No, but tried, no. Oh, tried the McLobster once. And it was like, yeah, there's a reason this is $7 or whatever it I was. I remember that. I remember that commercial. Give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. A little That's, kid. It's like, give it to Scotty. He'll eat anything. I, yeah, see if he likes it. I am one of those people and I'm going to admit it. And I'm not proud of it that you see these commercials for some company that comes out with a new flavor and you go, well, wait a sec, it's mango banana. Well, I know what mango and banana tastes like, but I got to taste this one to see if it really tastes like mango and banana. It's like, well, yeah, you taste it and it tastes like mango and banana. And, uh, but I, I'm just, I, I fall for it and I admit it and I'm not proud of it, but I do. Radley is standing by on the edge of his seat, waiting for the new pumpkin McRib. No, 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 no. It's coming up. Pumpkin, pumpkin is the one flavor that we do not venture. Uh, no, no, no pumpkin spice around here. 
All right. Have a good one. Thanks. And uh, have a great show tonight. Thank you. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Let's take a text from Bud on Canada's military procurement system. Uh, Bud says the Canadian military procurement system has been in decline since the cancellation of the Avro Arrow. Remember that? Keep right except to pass.